All right, I want to first of all thank uh, Brother Mike Gifford for filling in last week. Uh, last week, uh, the ministers had our ministers retreat where each year we go up to uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains in uh, the Blue Ridge, Georgia area. Uh, and we have a ministers retreat where we kind of think about uh, the church, some of our ministries, some of the things that we want uh, to, to challenge each other with, the, the next year's theme and all of that. So I'm very thankful Brother Mike was able to step in and, and teach such a wonderful lesson, fantastic lesson last week on our plea, uh, right in line with what we're talking about these two quarters in our class here on Wednesday nights. Uh, Brother Mike, it's, it's great to have guys like, like you and Brother Gene who can always just step up to the plate and do a better job than, than any of us could ever do. Um, but I, I think you've been there before, haven't you? You broke down and you did it. You went to the dealership. I meant dealership. You went to the dealership and you faced that uh, car salesman face to face, and and you you haggled with them. You went back and forth, and you finally got the courage to go to the car dealership. In a heated back and forth, you walked away. And you purchased a brand new, flawless, impeccable car. I don't know if you've ever done this. Some people may not have ever bought a new car because you know what happens to new cars. But let's say you have bought a new car. It's impeccable. It's, it's flawless. Let's say it has 10 miles on it. Have you ever had a car like that that was yours? I mean, you could say that this one is mine. No other owner has ever had this car. It is mine. And once you buy that car, the sun, sure enough, peeks through the clouds and it glistens down onto this brand new, brand spanking new car, right? I mean, the sun is glistening down. It is now yours. Think of all of, of the sacrifice that you've, that you've put into this car, all of the saving and all of the thought and all of the the meditation that it took to think about this dream car of yours, this car that is going to carry you into all of these future endeavors and adventures that you have before you. What happens the moment, I mean the very moment, that those tires touch the asphalt outside of that dealership? As soon as the tires touch the asphalt on the other side of that parking lot, boom. There went the value of that car. In fact, if you look it up, uh, driving that car 10 yards just cost you 11% of its entire value. Immediately, that car depreciates in value in an inexplicable way. In an inexplicable way, you have just lost 11% of its value. This grand chariot that was going to usher in a new phase of life for you is now 11% already less than it was. The problem is the car is just as bright. It's just as shiny. The sun is still glimmering down. It, it hasn't added any mileage to it at all. You haven't gone a mile. You haven't gone more than 100 feet. You haven't gotten in a wreck. You haven't done anything but roll a few feet. I mean, why does this happen? Why does a car depreciate 11% from being parked from here, being on this piece of gravel or asphalt or, or concrete over here. You know, if you were to drive down the road and, and thinking about your purchase in this new car and you start to have buyer's remorse. Ever have that? Buyer's remorse. You're driving down the road and you think to yourself, hey, maybe this was a mistake. I'm going to take it back to the dealership. I'm sure they're going to be very kind, very gracious I'm going to sell it back and just see if they'll give me back. Just, just give me back what I just paid for it. What are they going to offer you? They're going to offer you a lot less than what you just paid 
15 minutes prior to the when you when you left because at that point it's no longer retail price they're gonna offer you wholesale price even though it's 15 minutes later there is hardly any more miles on it how is this the case why why do the purchase of cars why why, why does the purchase of cars work that way does this make any sense uh, as you go through life and you see examples like this, the depreciation of material goods that happens in an instant, something you work towards all, all your, sometimes for years and years, sometimes your life if you're working on your first home or whatever it might be. The moment you get that thing, it instantly depreciates in value. It may look like the same exact thing that we bought, right? It may have all the same components. It may have all the same details. But one thing has changed. One thing has changed, and that is ownership. The ownership of that vehicle has changed. The keys have been handed over to another owner. The keys have been handed over to another, and it will never, ever be the same as it was before it was purchased. It'll never have, so to speak, the same purity to it because now it's had another owner. The same is true with the Lord's church and tonight we're going to be explaining how that's the case. Tonight we're going to be explaining that throughout our lesson. That's the goal of our lesson to explain how the Lord's Church is very much like that brand new car. But before we dive into this discussion tonight, let's take some time to remember a couple weeks ago where we were, how we kicked things off a couple weeks ago. We are engaged in a two-quarter long study called To Be Continued. It's going to be looking at the history of the restoration movement and how that very movement continues today. Last time we talked about the learning objectives, the learning outcomes for our class, and we went through what each of these are. We're going to be engaging, we're going to be trying to better understand, we're going to be providing this greater appreciation, challenging each other on why we believe what we believe today. Ultimately, we're trying to apply the lessons from the movement into our daily lives. We also talked about the six phases of our study as we go through these two quarters. The six phases of the restoration movement and we are starting with this introduction of the movement. And as we continue that introduction tonight, let's remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago we talked about the biblical basis of restoration. The basis that we have for the restoration plea, the, the restoration theology that we see in Scripture. We talked about the importance of, of searching the Scriptures for ourselves to, to see whether the things that are being said or are being practiced or are being preached, whether those things are so, right? Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the, the Berean Christians were, were more worthy than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scripture daily to see whether those things were so. We have to have a defense, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, for all the practices that we do in our, in our Christian life and in, in our worship and all the different things that we do in faith. That's what we are doing with this biblical basis for restoration. We also talked about uh, how God's Word, time and time again, all throughout the pages of Scripture, gives a plea for restoration. All throughout the Scriptures, I remember after the lesson, many people coming to me and saying, you know, restoration started all the way back in the garden when God set forth His plan to restore relationship with mankind. Restoration is from the beginning all the way to the end. We saw that when things get out of line or when things get off the rails in, in faith, it's an expectation from God that we restore it back to 
where it used to be. I mean, that's exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the passage that we went over. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. And so Moses tells the children of Israel, remember, this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave God. But just know that the moment you want to restore that relationship, He'll have you back. All you have to do is seek the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Turn to the Lord and obey His voice. And that's exactly what we saw from two different kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, right? When we looked at Hezekiah and then his great-grandson Josiah and how both of them looked at the situation around them in the kingdom of Judah and they realized, what happened? They looked at the situation around them and realized that they had gone so far away from what it used to be or what from God's expectations were, or what from the Word of God said. And so Zechariah and Josiah, remember, they, they sought the Lord with all of their heart. They turned to the Lord. They obeyed the Lord. And He was there. And then we went on to see how Jesus Himself calls for restoration to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 when He says, Remember from where you have fallen... Turn and do the first works. He's telling them to restore, to go through a restoration process in their life. And if they would to do that, they would be able to keep their lampstand, right? So we set this precedent in our first study of the restoration movement that the restoration plea, restoration theology didn't just start with a couple of guys in the 19th century named Stone and Campbell. The restoration movement goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Restoration plea, the restoration theology is all throughout the pages of Scripture. And so tonight, remember last time we, we ended with this teaser, right? This to-be-continued kind of statement. We know that we have to restore the church. We know that there's an expectation to restore it to something or to a destination. But the question is, where is the destination of our restoration? Where are we restoring it to? What, what is the end goal? Where is the end goal of our restoration? At what point can we look at the church and, and, and feel like it is restored? At what point do we feel like the, the restoration that we can look at it and call it quits and say, we've made it, we, we have restored the church? That's the question we're going to be examining tonight. You know, some of you may remember the church in the 1960s and the 1970s, and I'm sure, I'm, I know we have, members in here tonight who remember the Lord's Church. Bob remembers the 1860s and the 1870s. So I know that there has to be someone here tonight that remembers the church in the 60s and 70s. And you look back at that time with, with fond memories, right? You look back at the church at, at that time with, with, with fond memories. And, and Maybe tonight you, you look around and, and you remember that church that maybe you grew up in and as you were young, you saw it and you, you, you got to witness yourself. I, I can never say that I, I was able to witness that. You may be thinking to yourself as you look around that those were the glory days. I mean, those were really when the church had it going. That's when we had gospel meetings that lasted two weeks. Nowadays, we can't even last a weekend without losing people. And you look back at that time and you say to yourself, that was the glory days. That's when 
we had gospel preachers like Brother Gus Nichols and, and Brother W.A. Bradfield and, and Brother Marshall Keeble. And you look back at those times and, and you say to yourself, those were the days. Those were the glory days. My question is, is the 1960s and the 1970s, is that the destination of our restoration? Man, I certainly hope not. I certainly, you know, I wasn't there, but I certainly hope that the 60s and 70s is not our standard of the restoration that we are taking part in today. I certainly hope that that is not the destination that we aspire for. Because though I wasn't there, I know that the race relations in that time, even within the body of Christ, were wrong in the sight of God. Well, listen, if, if, if the 1960s and the 1970s wasn't the destination of our restoration, well, let's just go back to the time of, of Stone Campbell themselves. Let's, let's, that's what this called, right? The Stone Campbell movement. So maybe we can go back to the time of, of Thomas Campbell and Barton W. Stone and, and Alexander Campbell and, and, and think to ourselves that that's the destination for our restoration. Is that the destination? Is that what we are aspiring to? Is that the standard that we have set for our class and for our lives as we go forward to be like the church when, when these guys were, were going from town to town in, in wagons? Is that the destination for our restoration? Again, I, I have to say, I certainly hope not. I certainly hope that, that we would put an expectation on ourselves to not just be followers of men, but be disciples of our Lord. So, okay, that's not the destination for the restoration. Well, somebody says to themselves, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got the answer. Okay, I get it. We're going to go back to the time of the first century church. Somebody says to themselves, got them now. I mean, there's no way you can say that that's not the destination. We need to restore it back to the image of the church of the first century. I mean, after all, that's when they had inspired men walking around and going from congregation to congregation, establishing uh, churches. Surely this is the time that, that we are setting as a goal for our restoration. I mean, when you think about it, that's when the rulers of cities themselves. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, what did he say? These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I mean, that's the kind of people we're talking about. People that turn the world upside down. Surely, surely that is the destination for our restoration. I mean, we call ourselves the New Testament church, right? If we're the New Testament church, then we need to mirror exactly the image of the first century church, right? This has to be our destination. Well, I'm sorry, but I have to say it again. I certainly hope not. I hope we would be able to read the New Testament today and realize that in a lot of capacities, the church was already off the rails by the time of the first century. In a lot of capacities, the church was already gone off the pattern revealed from Christ and from his disciples. I mean, how can you read the epistles and not realize that the church was already messed up. Tonight, I, before we get started with this, I don't want to go back to the New Testament church and just trash it all night. Trust me. It's not my goal to go back to the first century church with 21st century glasses and condemn them or, or judge them or, 
unrighteously make fun of them or, or whatever the case might be, I promise you, I'm not, my goal is not to go back to the first century and, and cast stones, so to speak. That's not my goal. I would never want to go back and trash the Lord's church. I mean, for all, after all, we, we go to the book of Acts, don't we? We go to the book of Acts for a standard, for, for, for an example, for a pattern to follow. We go to the letters of Paul and we go to the rest of the New Testament for guidance on how we should live in our faith and in our worship and in our practices and, and the example that they set forth, right? We go to the first century church for that example. But I don't know if you've gotten there yet in your life, but when you study God's Word, do you not see example after example, time after time, occasion after occasion, where the church, even in the New Testament, failing to live up to the standard that Christ had set for them. Obviously we can. And therefore, even the first century church, even the New Testament church, cannot be the destination of our restoration. Here's some examples. Let's just go through this because I feel like this is the hardest one for us to understand. Of course the first century church is our destination. What are you talking about? Well, just bear with me as we go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to see if, if this is the destination for our restoration. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done such a deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, this text has always been difficult for me to take in, really. I don't know if, this, if you felt this way about this text. But this text has always been difficult for me to take in. That the church, the bride of Christ, was accepting such immorality. I hope you don't gloss over what is happening in this text. Let's wrap our minds around what is happening. Here is a congregation of the Lord's people who are glorying, if you look at the definition of that word, it's more, ESV says, boasting. They are boasting at how tolerant they are, at how accepting they are that, that they would allow even someone like this to be in their midst that they're so accepting, that they're so tolerant, that they're just fine with a man sleeping with his father's wife. You know, scholars tend to believe that this man, I mean, this had to be his stepmother. You know, when you look at the culture of Corinth, I don't know if we can know. Either way, whether it's his stepmother or his real mother, how sick is that? How sick and against God's word and his expectation and his pattern for marriage and for, and for sexual purity and ethics, how sick is this when we look at the church in Corinth and not only know that it is happening, 
but know that it is being condoned. Know that it is being celebrated as something that is good and, and holy and everything else. How sick is that? You know, obviously this is sick in God's eyes. But the church is puffed up with pride about it. The church was puffed up with pride about how awesome this is. How awesome is it that this guy gets to sleep with his mom or his stepmom? The text says that they hadn't mourned it, that they were glorying in it. They hadn't done anything but encourage this type of immorality. I mean, that's why Paul goes on in the text to say, guys, guys, your boasting is not good. Stop boasting about this. This is the biggest embarrassment I've ever heard of. He says a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. What is he trying to say by that? He's trying to say, if you allow this, if you look at this situation and you boast in this, then what isn't acceptable? If you look at this situation and give your thumbs up, what aren't you going to give a thumbs up to? What aren't you going to approve in the, in the realm of, of church life and worship and faith? What aren't you going to approve if you will accept this? So let me ask you, does the first century church sound like the destination of our restoration? When the church in Corinth is openly accepting a man sleeping with his mother or his stepmother, Everyone is praising him for it? I certainly hope not. Let's just keep it in Corinth. Turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. It says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Man, I, I hate to pick on the church in Corinth, but what is going on here? Paul is very randomly at a loss for words. But here in the text, what does he say? What? Then later on he says, What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? What is he talking about? He's talking about what they're doing. Paul says, When you come together to worship, you know what? With what you're doing, you might, you, you'd be better off if you just didn't show up at all. You'd be better off if you just didn't even come together to worship than if you were to come and do what you have grown accustomed to doing. That's some strong language, isn't it? What else does he say? He says, you show up divided. You show up divided at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, I plead with you that there be no divisions among you. Chapter 11, he says, there's division among you. There's factions among them. And those that are approved can be recognized. Those who haven't been approved, they, they can't be recognized. Does that sound like the example we want to follow? Not only that, he says when you come together, you don't come together to take the Lord's Supper like you should. You come to get drunk off the Lord's Supper. You come to, to be gluttonous in your eating of the bread. And not only that, some of you are hoarding it all for yourself so that, so that you can be filled by the Lord's Supper. And yet some of you aren't even able to get any Lord's Supper. 
how messed up is that? Can you imagine coming to the, to the assembly of the saints and, and not even having any ability to get the Lord's Supper because people were stealing it or people were hoarding it or people, whatever's going on here in, in, in the church in Corinth. Man, it's not right. That's exactly why Paul says, what? What are we doing, guys? What are we doing, church in Corinth? It's like he's saying, are you kidding me? If you're looking for praise about this, don't, don't hold your breath, because it's not going to come for me. So my question again is, is this the destination of our restoration? I certainly hope not. You know, let's spread the love, I mean, criticism, as we look at the church in Galatia. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see Paul say, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the name of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. You know, poor Paul, right? Paul is putting out all these fires in Corinth, and now here comes Galatia preaching a whole entirely different gospel than the one through which they were preached first. What is this gospel? He calls it perverted. Perverted gospel. They have taken the gospel, the pure good news of Jesus, and they have twisted it into fitting what they want it to look like. This perverted, twisted gospel. Now what that gospel was, when we asked the question, well, what, what is this perverted gospel? It never outright tells you what the church in Galatia was teaching but through the context of the book it's easy to see that they were forcing the old law while also forcing the new they were forcing circumcision as if it was a practice of Christianity that you had to partake in that's why we go to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 15 and Paul and Timothy have to go to Jerusalem to go to this council. It's all about this Galatians chapter 1 right here. The church was, was split on this matter. There were Judaizers, that's what scholars call them, Judaizing teachers that were going to the church and they were forcing the old law the law of Moses and the law of Christ as if they could ever coincide. I think that's why Paul would be so emphatic and say, I don't care if an angel comes down to you, preaches something different. Let that angel be accursed. That's some bold language, isn't it? That's some bold language from Paul. Paul knows he's endowed with the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, though. He knows the gospel that he has preached is not erroneous. And that's why he can be so emphatic. He's trying to let them know, listen, you have received the full gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care who comes to you and tells you something different. Don't listen. Of course, we know they continue to listen, as we all see throughout false teachers throughout all time. False teachers are always going to have followers. But the question is, is the church in Galatia, is the church in Galatia something that we need to set at our destination for our restoration? Pretty obvious no. We'll keep it in Galatia. Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. 
For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Paul recalls this time that that he was in Antioch, the church in Antioch, this church that had done so much for his, for his mission work. But he was at the church in Antioch in this congregation, and, and Peter was openly, whatever you want to call it, let's just say prejudice. He was a respecter of person. He, he, he was showing partiality. Because when it was just Gentiles, guess what he would do? He'd eat with them. I mean, Peter, after all, he was the one in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius, he was the one who, who baptized the first Gentile convert. So when the Gentiles were there, he didn't have any qualms with them. He'll eat with them. But when it was time for the Jews to show up, he would leave the Gentiles and go and eat with the Jews. He would leave the, 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 the brothers and sisters in Christ that were seated over here, and he would go and, and eat with these other brothers and sisters in Christ because he preferred them. He preferred to be around them over this other group. Does that sound like anything to you? Sound like racism to me? Wasn't only Peter, by the way. Wasn't only Peter, and I think we, we, we often overlook that, don't we? The text says that all the Jewish Christians would, would do that as well. The text even says that is man, what a harsh thing. Even Barnabas was carried away, it says. Can you imagine what it would have must have felt like to be a Gentile Christian? some of our brothers and sisters tonight can I don't know if I can some of our brothers and sisters tonight know what it's like to be ostracized to be experience prejudice to experience favoritism just because of how you were born can you imagine being a Gentile Christian in Antioch and, and being constantly and consistently viewed as less than on the one hand, you have Peter preaching this message, this gospel that is for all nations. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering toward us, that all should come to repentance. That's on one hand. And when it comes time to practice it, there he is, showing favoritism and prejudice on the other hand. That's what, what does Paul say? Playing the hypocrite. Paul calls it out. He says, I withstood him to his face because he was to blame. He called it hypocrisy. The question I have tonight, is that the destination of our restoration? The first century church where prejudice was accepted as normal behavior. Okay, okay, I get it. I get it. You may, maybe you're saying, saying that to yourself tonight. I get it. First century church is not far back enough. The first century church is not the destination for our restoration. I get it. The New, Te New Testament church was already flawed. It, it was already marred. It was already, in some respects, off rails. But how can we go further than that, then? There is no further back than the first century church because there was no church before Acts 2, Ben. There is no other church to restore it back to, right? I mean... Got some knowledge I don't? It is true that the New Testament church is the only church that we can see in Scripture. It is true that the New Testament church is that non denominational church, that body of believers that we are aspiring to be. But it is also true that that New Testament church was not church that God intended for it to be. 
it was not the church of God's intent. And it's just like that car we talked about earlier. It's just like that brand new car. The moment you drive it off the lot, it depreciates. It immediately becomes something less than it was originally intended to be. The church is no different. The moment Christ took a perfect institution, a perfect institution that was bought and purchased with His own blood, the moment He took that institution and He gave the keys over to flawed human beings, it wasn't long before that institution was no longer It wasn't long before human beings who are flawed and make mistakes and sin and transgress and have bias and have opinions and have purposes and, and have agendas. It wasn't long until that church was no longer what it was originally intended to be. You see, tonight as we talk about the destination for our restoration, it is nothing short God intended for the church to be. What God intends today for His church to be. His expectation is our goal. It is our standard. When we settle for anything less than what God intends, it's no longer a restoration movement, it's a decaying stagnant. So, can't see that, can you? No, you can't. I can't see that one. The goal, the destination, the end goal and the purpose for our restoration is nothing short of being the church that God intends us to be. The goal for this class is to be restoring the church to God's intent. Not to Ben's intent or Kyle's intent or the elder's intent, but to God's intent. Not to Alexander Campbell's, not to Barton W. Stone's, not to Martin Luther's, not to any of the people we're going to be talking about in this class over the next two quarters. The goal of the restoration movement is to restore the church to the church that God intended for her to be help us tonight see what that intent was and is let's turn over to our theme verse for our class our theme verse for our class is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 here in the midst of this great chapter on family the great chapter on husbands and wives in chapter 6 talking about children here in the middle of it all chapter 5 and verse 27 Paul says that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish you know when Paul says glorious when when he says not having spot not having wrinkle holy and without blemish does that sound like the church today See some of you nodding those heads, shaking, not nodding, shaking those heads. Hopefully, no one's nodding. If you're nodding, I can correct that afterwards. I'll tell you what's messed up. No, I'm just kidding. No, this doesn't sound like the church today. Question for you: Does that sound like the church in the '70s? No. Does it sound like the church of Stone and Campbell? No. Even though this is in the New Testament, does it sound like the church we read about in the New Testament? No. The only church that this could refer to is the church that God intended from the beginning. It sounds like the church that Christ deserves for us to be. 
if we aren't aspiring to this, we've missed the point. Let's look at some other New Testament passages as we think about referring the church to God's intent. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 21, it says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the church that God intended. A church that is holy and blameless and above reproach. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There in verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. What a, what a thought. Godly jealousy. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. The church that God intended to have was like a chaste virgin. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before Him in love. Before the foundation of the world, God intended for the church to be holy and without blame. Brother Mike talked about this passage last week. Turn to John chapter 17. This is the last one. John chapter 17. In the ultimate goal that we can find for the New Testament church, for, for, for Christ's church, the ultimate goal that we can aspire to is found there in what Jesus said at the end. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus himself says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. When we look at these passages, it's, it's very obvious for us to understand God chose us. God chose us you and he chose me these aliens and, and enemies the verse says he chose those to be his children to adopt those as children to reconcile them into one body one body what body was that his own the passage says Colossians we just read through his flesh into death he sacrificed his own body for this church of his intent therefore it is incumbent on every single one of us individually and all of us congregationally to aspire to restore this intent. It is, it is vitally called upon each and every one of us to restore the holiness, the blamelessness, the, the chasteness, and the unity that we just read about in these scriptures. The unity, all those things that it calls for us to be. That is God's expectation. 
And that is why it is the destination for our restoration. You know, when we look at Paul, when we look at Peter, when we look at John, when we look at the New Testament authors, they were already engaged in the restoration movement. They were already engaged restoring the church to God's intent. They were engaged in this restoration movement in the first century. And that movement continues to this day. That was the destination of restoration then. And it must be the destination now. The question is, where do we start? Where do we begin on this restoration process? What do we begin what, what, what is the beginning of this restoration? How do we begin this journey? What is the first step we need to take? Well, the answer to that is to be continued. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the ability you've given us to come and to study your word, to look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we a part of that restoration? Restoring the church, restoring ourselves individually to who you have intended for us to be. Help us in this endeavor, Lord. Help us in this class throughout these two quarters to truly look at our lives, look at our congregation here at Buford Church of Christ and ask ourselves, are we bearing name that you intend for us to bear, your son. Thank you so much for your son. Thank you for your grace when we fail and when we come up short. When we do, we pray that we'll have the faith, as Moses said, to seek you with all of our heart and soul, to turn to you and to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray.